When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Venture X card from Capital One gives you premium travel benefits. Perfect for seeing Taylor Swift The Eras Tour. Presented by Capital One. Ooh, I do love her. Earn five times miles on flights and ten times miles on hotels through Capital One Travel. Enjoy your stay in Suite 13. Whoa, 13? That's Taylor's lucky number. The Venture X card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. You're digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD, Will the Thrill, and TJ2. Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD, along with me for the ride, as always, is TJ2 the Deuce. Oh, oh now that, that was really good. Did you record that? Can we use that for future audio? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Uh, and what are you drinking today, T? Um, a little bit of a throwback to um, college days when um, money for beverages was tight and you had to get what you could get. I'm having an ice house. Wow. Oh. I haven't ice house, ice. by the way, was the name of an 80s band who had a hit with Electric Blue. And I'm so glad we did. Well played, uh, sir. Well played. It, it, go ahead and intro the other fella real quick. And we have Will the Thrill. And I helped. Oh, God. Now, Will can probably vouch for the fact that to pull off that joke that I just did, I am really suffering for my craft. I admire that. I admire the lengths you went to to pull this off. You Because it involves me drinking an ice house. <laughs> Your sacrifice has not gone unnoticed. Yeah. A, a, and by the way, not just an ice house, a 40 of ice house. Because it's all I could find. This is a, just an audio medium. No one can actually, you could just lie about what you were drinking. We have to be honest with our audience. <laughs> <laughs> if not, where does it stop, LD? Where does it stop? Where does it um, stop? I think it's important to to address the uh, elephant in the room, or in this case, the HVAC unit in the room, and why this episode is late. Okay, yeah. So, really quick, we apologize for not having an episode last week, but uh, my identity actually got stolen, so I had to deal with that. And then we had a massive fire. (laughs) We had an electrical fire in our HVAC unit, our whole place filled with smoke. We packed up the cats, called the fire department, and ran out. Yep. Oof. It was quite uh, unsettling. Now, I will give a shout out here to the fine folks at the Los Angeles Fire Department. Uh, We were coming down the stairs with the cats, and they were coming up. So that's the indication of response time. Absolutely. So well done there. Thank you. And I know they fight worse fires than the incident in our apartment. So I think they deserve a little Did they? um, Did you ever get the smoke smell out of your uh, apartment? It took like two days, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Really? Yeah. We had to clean everything off. There was like a fine layer of a film of ash and of soot, yeah. out of the uh, HVAC unit 
We got a new HVAC unit, so there's that. Yep, we figure out how long it actually takes for us to pack the cats up and how much I will freak out and just throw anything into it. Like, I, okay, there's a fire happening and the cats are okay. What do you grab? What do you grab? I, fa- I answered that question for myself because of what I grabbed, which was my signed copy of I Am Legend <laughs> and my signed copy of Anastasia. I have a signed copy of Anastasia that is signed by Angela Lansbury and my copy of I Am Legend, which is signed by the now deceased author, Richard Matherson. And those are the two items that I grabbed. And, like, and, and so y'all, you got you guys got your cats, your two signed books and your laptop, right? And that, that was about it. Yep. Now, yep. I'm surprised I didn't grab my original Alan Lee. I'm, I'm shocked, yeah. too. Well, you stayed up here. That's true. I was up here with the fire department. Yeah, he, so. he stayed up here with the fire department. So, so worst comes to worst, I could have grabbed it and ran out. But yes, I yes. have an original Rivendell p- printing by concept artist for Lord of the Rings, Alan Lee. And it is a limited copy. So that, that should probably be on the list. Yeah. So that's what that's what uh, we, we answered that question. What would you grab if the place was on fire? That's what we grabbed. So your Alan Lee is pretty fanciful. So let's talk about someone else who's very fanciful. And that would be David Bowie part two. Indeed. All right. So um, I want to talk about David Bowie in the 70s, but to do that, you have to back up just a hair because we ended with Space Oddity. But before that, we're missing a couple people that are important to David Bowie and in his life that were introduced around the same time that Space Oddity was launching. Launching. (laughs) See what you did there. So George Underwood... retired from the music scene and was actually doing full-time painting and illustrations for inner sleeves and cover art. So uh, it was George who created the inner sleeve work for Mark Boland's Tyrannosaurus Rex debut. My people were fair and had sky in their hair, but now they're content to wear stars on their brows, which by the way, is just the dumbest thing you can name your, like, what do you even call that? Like, there's no word that you can just pick out of those 38 words. It's like the Borat movie. But that was released on the 5th of July, 1968. And George would go on to create the Intersleep portraits from Mark and Mickey Finn for T-Rex's Electric Warrior album and illustrate the Futuristic Dragons cover and would also design the artwork for Bowie's Hunky Dory and the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. Mata Hoople? Hoople. Hoople? Okay. Hoople. <laughs> and all the young dudes. If, I, if I remember, was um, Queen's first tour of America not opening for Mata Hoople? Yes. I think that's right, yeah. Yep. So I want to introduce you to someone who is, I think, going to be with Bowie for a very long time, and that's Tony Visconti. He's an American record producer, musician, and singer. And Visconti then became an in-house producer for his publisher, the Richmond Organization. Through this, he met producer Denny Cordell in 1968 when he was working in Richmond. And he asked him to assist in recordings for a successful jazz vocalist, Georgie Fame. Visconti moved to London to work with Fame, and that would be his like career-defining move. Uh, one of his first productions in England was working for T-Rex on their debut album. I'm not going to say it again, but it's that same thing that I literally just said. This relationship with T-Rex would last for their next eight albums, which I didn't realize T-Rex had eight albums. 
But uh, the I thought only- they had that one song. Yes, the medley of their many hits. <laughs> I thought they I thought they had a forty five called Bang a Gong, and then they checked off. <laughs> and they just re released it right the twentieth anniversary yes. Bang a Gong. But see, it's uh, it's one of those things where uh, T Rex had to be more massive in Britain than they were here. Like it's just a one hit one. Like the whole crux of your Christmas episode where you talked about one hits that weren't weren't one hits. Right. I think T-Rex is in that. Like they're not Probably. they're not in that that pantheon of people who actually did one hit wonders. But I don't so, think they charted in the US. Maybe that's what it means. Yeah, yeah. I just don't think they they made really well over here. So uh, yeah, well, there are a lot of people who were huge across the pond and never yeah, they had a hit or two here. Like Cliff Richard, wouldn't he have like a really big deal in mother in the motherland? And he had a he had a few hits here, but kind of the same deal. Nobody can be aha, I'm sorry. <laughs> right. So in June of nineteen sixty eight, the following single, John Simon's My Name is Jack, was recalled when the US company Mercury Records complained about the phrase super spade in the lyrics, which referred to a Hade Ashbury drug dealer. The release was delayed by a week until the offending name was re-recorded as Superman, which reached number five in December for Manfred Mann's Earth Band. <laughs> it out early the federally mandated manfred man's earth band reference of the podcast <laughs> that might be the earliest we've ever done it i yeah i okay full disclosure i wrote this episode and my reference to manfred man came in 1977 oh that's what you i end this episode i think at 1974 because i'm going to be fully transparent with you guys david bowie had a really full life and in the years 1970 to 1980 he released 11 records along with having a very full life. <laughs> so this episode only gets up to 1974. It's not even a full decade. It's not. I can't. I couldn't. It's if we did his full decade, this episode alone would be about six hours. Yeah. It's, it's well, maybe much. you can do. Maybe you can save some time later by um, skipping over a tin machine because. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough so uh one of visconti's greatest successes was electric warrior the album that made t-rex's frontman mark bolin a superstar and cemented his producing powers so at the end of visconti's first six months in london he was summoned by essex boss david platz and david said you seem to have a talent for working with weird acts and i'd like to play something for you to consider and from the speakers emulated a unique and unforgettable voice the phrasing was something that you'd expect from a seasoned stage actor or stage performer performer that's the word stage performer or a cabaret act hey that's what i'm here for the the songs were humorous and dark and the backing was imaginative and basically tony was like what is this and platt said his name is david bowie and he's 19 which he was actually already 20 at the time but it was only when tony was led into literally the next room and found david sitting there (laughs) that he realized that he had been set up so platt's like brought him in played this music and he was like you like this huh well he's right here you guys should talk did he play him uncle arthur is that the song you played i actually think he did play him Uncle Arthur. that is fantastic yeah well that would have that would have won him i I don't know how it could (laughs) if that didn't do it nothing would that space oddity thing yeah well, they hit it off 
instantly because they loved the same music, which was Frank Zappa, the Bugs, Velvet Underground. I have a very funny story about the Velvet Underground in just a little bit. And movies. Visconti quickly became involved with Bowie as an arranger and producer, and he continued to work with him on a string of acclaimed records throughout the 70s, as well as producing his final four albums, which did include Black Star. Back in the 60s, however, Visconti admits that uh, not everything he worked on with Bowie was deemed a success. And he was still developing as a songwriter and trying to corral his own talents. I was asked by a publisher to channel him into one style, he recalls. But like, think about that, trying to channel Bowie into one style. That's like pouring a gallon of liquid into a shot glass. Yeah, it's not going to fit. Yeah. <laughs> and I found the thing that he did best was putting his 12 green string guitar and accompanying himself. His songs were good, but as a record producer, I was a bit of a novice, which at that time forced me to leave the technical aspects to the indifferent engineers. He was all over the place creatively when I first met him, but this period immediately afterwards was much better. At best, the songs were charming, albeit a little bit naive. By 1969, Tony had worked with Bowie on his second album, the self-titled work that spawned Space Oddity, the first single of his career, but Bowie wasn't standing still. However, he quickly dropped one style for another, and he co-produced the role on the second album, which was the follow-up called The Man Who Sold the World. Yes, one of my favorites. Oh, great song. And, well, it's funny that you mentioned that, T, because right now we are going to listen to The Man Who Sold the World. Yay! Friend, which game? 
we're back. And like I said, that's one of my favorite Bowie songs. Such a great song. It really is. I, I think it's kind of in that same vein as Hurt is, where it was kind of handed down to the newer generation with Kurt Cobain. Yeah, the Nirvana version is definitely slower and not as, uh, like, this one has almost a, a, a pacing to it. The Nirvana one is almost, you know, is like you said, the Hurt analogy, it's much slower. Yeah. Yeah. Slower, yeah. a little more sullen, too. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's a beautiful song, but if you break down Bowie's discography, there is beauty in just about everything he does. It's all strange and nuanced, but there is a familiarity to it, and it's beautiful. I don't think he has produced an ugly song. And again, it's representative Bowie at that time. It's very emblematic of who he was at that period, which, as you'll cover, changes greatly. Yeah. Yes. yes. And, 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 and almost constantly. Yes. So last week, I talked about Dana Gillespie. And if you actually listen to Heroes, the, David, the book on David Bowie by Leslie Ann Jones, the narrator calls her Donna, Donna, Donna Gillespie, because it's D-A-N-A. And it, I guess Dana over here is Donna over there. Okay. So just a note to our, our fans across the pond. I totally get that you guys pronounce it Donna. So anyway, <laughs> Dana Gillespie and I, I was talking about Dana Gillespie and her relationship with David last week. And I wanted to go a little bit into that. So this is basically all one big quote that I'm about to tell you. It comes from an article with Dana because she is a, a world-renowned blues singer. And so she was doing an interview about how she met and had kind of a relationship with David Bowie. So, and I quote, I was particularly taken by the lead singer in a support act called Davy Jones and the Manish Boys. <laughs> the striking thing about him was his hair. It was shoulder length and lemon yellow with sort of a Veronica Lake cut. When I was 15, one night I was standing at the back of a club brushing my waist length peroxide blonde hair when the singer approached from behind me. He took the brush from my hand and started pulling it through my hair and asked if he could come home with me that night. Of course, I said yes. And that's how I met David Jones. Uh, he would later change his name to David Bowie. We walked to my house where I smuggled him past my parents' bedroom and up to the top floor. And I would briefly wonder how I was going to explain his presence to my parents the next morning. We landed in my single bed and messed around a bit sexually. That's the exact quote. You don't say. Yeah. <laughs> in the morning, I had to go David to David Bowie had sex? Yeah, what? Yeah. Shocker. <laughs> Fun fact. There's a lot, lot of sex, lot of sex. Fun fact, David Bowie had sex. Yep. Fun fact. So I had to go to school the next morning, so I needed him to get down past my parents' bedroom, but my mother and father must have heard us because they both appeared on the landing. That's awkward. Straight away, I introduced my visitor by saying, this is David, upon which David shook hands with my father and then tried it off. My father told me that afterwards he thought I had a girlfriend with me because of the long hair. It occurred to me that David really just needed someplace to stay and it had been too late for him to get home to Bromley and Kent. From then on, he used to spend the night with me. Sometimes he'd invite me to go wherever, whatever gig he was doing, or he'd pick me up from school, which caused a bit of a stir amongst my friends and carrying my ballet shoes when we walked back to my home. Often we'd meet at the Giancana Cafe on Denmark Street, where all the publishing companies were. And at the time, neither of us really saw ourselves as performers, but we both had songs that we wanted to publish. So once David asked me to his home in Bromley, where he lived with his parents, it was a small terrace house. I had never been anywhere like it before. 
and I was amazed at how small their living room was. It had three armchairs in it, all facing the TVs, with bits of material on the back to soak up the brysalim the father put on his hair. After offering me a tuna sandwich, David's parents just sat there in silence, looking miserable. David told me later that whatever happened, he was going to leave that life behind. My own parents never objected me to bringing a boy home. More or less, they'd let me do anything that I liked. I was treated like an adult, and they trusted me to do the right thing. So Dana didn't actually know that David was sleeping with another man while she was still seeing him. Oh, my. And that man was Lindsay Kemp, the instructor at the mime school. And he also was sleeping with Natasha Kornoff. I think that's how you say her name who was a fashion set designer who would eventually dress Bowie for his 1978 world tour and actually created the Ashes to Ashes hero costume. So he kept dating all of them and then just toss in Leslie Duncan for good measure. And he was still hanging around Dana. So he would also sleep with a student named Hermione Farthingale. And then everybody found out that he was kind of bouncing from bed to bed at one time. David Bowie was just, has genitalia will travel. I mean, David Bowie had a lot of sex. I'm just, I'm, I'm just going to say that. Uh, And can we just acknowledge Hermione Farthingale is the most British name ever? It's a gorgeous British name too. I love her name. Seeped in the UK. It's gorgeous. I mean, yeah. If if her name was Britty McEngland, it wouldn't be more British than. I thought Lucy McPhee was your favorite. I, I might have been dethroned for Hermione Farthingale. I don't know. Fair enough. We put it to our listeners. Go ahead. So anyway, so Dana found out about all of the sex and she really didn't care. (laughs) She really wasn't possessive over David. In fact, the only scene, the only person that really seemed upset by it was Lindsey Kemp when he tried to commit suicide. He tried to, he cut his wrist before. Yeah, Yeah, he cut his wrist and people were like, part one. Yeah, that's incredible special effects look at all the blood like no that's not, that, that's real yeah he's uh now he's bleeding to death yeah so she said that she wasn't possessive and then he brought angie to meet dana so who is angie well i'm gonna say this before anybody writes in nasty letters i'm already confused yes i understand i understand that Prior to Angie, who I'm going to do a little deep dive into, a little mini deep dive into in a minute, there was another woman. I bet David dove into her. (laughs) David dove into most people. I'm pretty sure if me and Mr. Thrill wandered into a room and David Bowie was there, we'd both end up, you know, having the same thing to brag about. (laughs) We both have equal chances with David Bowie. Yeah, it's this 50-50 shot. Uh, He's the Bill Clinton of singers. Anyway, so... There, before anybody writes me nasty letters, yes, I know that there, David did have a relationship with a woman named Mary prior to meeting Angie. I totally get that. It's just that she really didn't have a bearing on the story, so I didn't really put her in. So, who was Angie? This was Mary Angela Barnett, born September 25th, 1949. She was an American model, actress, and journalist, and she influenced. Glam rock, and I will explain that in a little bit. Uh, Bowie and Barnett met in London through a mutual acquaintance, or as Bowie put it, we were both going out with the same man. (laughs) That is one way to put it. Yes. 
they actually were dating the same guy. Angie's arrival encouraged Bowie to explore his more androgynous side, but not everybody in Bowie's entourage took to this loud, domineering American. I mean, uh, there's a reason why. (laughs) Uh, She was the daughter of an ex-army colonel, and she had a privileged upbringing in a posh school in Montreux, Switzerland, from the age of nine, and then going to U.S. school at 16 to attend Connecticut College for Women. So she was bossy. She was clever. She was accomplished. She was wild. She was an uninhibited American. She was raised in Cyprus. Uh, She was fluent in French. She was the daughter of the colonel. And at age 18, she was dispatched to a college in America, but was expelled for having a lesbian relationship. Didn't know that was a thing. That was grounds for dismissal in the late 60s. Yes, apparently it was. Uh, That same night that David and Angie were introduced in a club by Calvin Markley, they slept together in one of two places, which was, according to Angie, it was at the Speakeasy, and it was the night that King Crimson celebrated their new recording contract, and hooking on to something that you talked about the last series on Mm -hmm. Adam Yauch, Donovan got up and sang Buddy Holly songs with them. Which I believe was Adam Horowitz's uh, father-in-law. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. So link up there. Yeah. Uh, David came back to my little room above the Nomad Travel Club in Paddington, but Tony Visconti insisted that their carnal debut took place on the cushions of the floor in his flat. So don't know where they first slept with you. It's not going to be the last time they sleep with each other. I will say that. Why is that important? <laughs> <laughs> because the internet told me it was important. This book said it was important. Okay, so I've introduced you to a lot of people that meant something to David in that time, but he sadly actually has to say goodbye to someone he truly cared about. That year, which was 1969, David's father became seriously ill with low bar pneumonia in August of 1969. Uh, David was away with Ken Penn and it was taking a part in some kind of song contest in Italy and Malta. On his return, he visited to show his father his award. And then just two days later, on the 5th of August, John passed away while David was in the studio. He was only 56 years old. Mm-hmm. His dad was, from what we learned in part one, dad was super supportive. Yes. Yeah. Of him pursuing music and everything else. Yeah, he got him the... He got him the saxophone. He got him the, you know, he helped with the lessons. He upgraded the sax. He, he was just one of those dads just stands behind you and is just really proud of you. So, and again, I'm not going super mom heavy on this, but you got to remember at this time, David's still very worried about his mental stability because of the schizophrenia that runs in his family. And he does worry about this because he does change his personas. He finds that behaving like someone else makes it so much easier for him to perform. That was his brother that suffered extensively from from schizophrenia, correct? Yes, his brother, uh, Terry, is, is truly suffering from the throes of schizophrenia. So in 1993, David spoke to a writer and a fellow one-time Bromley resident, I'm going to mess this name up, Hanif Kernshi, Karishi, okay, about the loss of his father. And this is a quote. It was at the point when I was just beginning to grow up a bit, and I appreciated that he would have stretched out his hand a little for us so that we could get to know each other. He just died at the wrong damn time because there were so many things I would have loved to have said to him and asked him about. 
all those stereotypical regrets when your father dies and you haven't completed your relationship. I felt so damn, damn, wrong time, not now, not now. During the run-up to Christmas 1969, Tony and his friend Liz Hartley joined David and Angie at their huge and apparently haunted apartment in Haddon Hall. And all of a sudden, there? I want to go to Haddon Hall. David Bowie's haunted apartment? <laughs> yes. I mean... What a great tribute band name. There's at least two reasons for me to want to go to Haddon Hall now. If I had any talent whatsoever, I would form David Bowie's Haunted Apartment as a band. Yes, and, and we can probably just safely assume he had sex with a ghost. I mean, because... Fair assumption, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hang on, talk amongst yourselves. I, I mean, gotta... you got to think, after, you know, the human race, he's transcending to the spirit. Yes, he's, then he, he had like a goblin bent over a coffee table just railing it. I'm sorry. <laughs> To kind of wrap up the 60s for David Bowie, he didn't care for it at all. He had had a series of flops musically. He he wasn't one of those like flower children. And he just never really got off of the revolutionary stuff. And even Space Oddity fixated on the loneliness of space travel rather than the pioneer spirit that, you know, was really reflected in that era. It also seems like that was the only blip on the radar. Musically, he was going nowhere until Space Oddity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He... He was a mime opening for T-Rex. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I mean, when you put it that way, yeah. I that's, would... a, that's what happened. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the 1960s, as a society, like as, like as we look back on it fondly, you know, we're like, oh, there was the revolutionary spirit and there was the bra burnings and there was the flower power and the hippie movement, bah, 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 bah. And then we all kind of agreed that the 70s just kind of sucked <laughs> because that was what happened on in August of 1969 kind of killed any love that we had. It was a decade of malaise. It was, yeah, it was great. And then all of a sudden the Manson family came along and we're like, oh crap, everything kind of sucks. And then they started making the suits out of polyester. And I think that's really where we went downhill. So we're going to take a short break for our sponsors and we will be right back. And we're back and jumping back into David Bowie. Thank you to our sponsors. You can support us by supporting them. And a lot of it's in response to the Vietnam War too. And how yeah. we, you know, as a, as a nation and world responded to that conflict. Yeah, but we had anxiety. We had, it was a decade of cults and terrorists and scandals, recessions, defeats, environmental panic, and a sense of constant crisis. It was gas what, crisis, right? Yeah, yeah. What Francis Wayne described in his book, Strange Days Indeed, the Golden Age of Paranoia as a pungent malign of apocalyptic dread and conspiratorial fervor. Bowie was to the 70s what the Beatles was to the 60s. He was a lightning rod, a tuning fork, a mirror. With his mastery of dread and the elements of dread, the man who would describe himself as an awful pessimist understood the decade's strange energy like no other musician. Argue with me. Say he wasn't. I mean, he's right up there with Ice House. <laughs> close i mean after after a smash like uncle arthur i, I don't see how yes at the beginning of 1970 david started gigging with a new lineup which was tony visconti junior eye drummer john cambridge and their guitarist joe rennick and the this was the height which was david's next project sorry is it tim renwick is a guitar player tim renwick tim renwick okay i thought he said joe sorry oh did i say joe joe renwick like yeah. <laughs> yes you did it's oh, tim I'm renwick sorry no, shout out to our friend Joe, Bulldog Joe. I graduated high school. That is not the guitarist with... <laughs> Despite popular opinion, it's actually Tim Renwick. 
Tamara Wick. I apologize. And this was the hype. And that was David's next project. And this seems to be the one that starts glam rock. Everybody had to dress up on stage. And Tony insisted on wearing a Superman costume, which was super embarrassing for everyone involved. I think including Tony. <laughs> but it was, you would have to dress up. You had to wear makeup to get on stage. And so, uh, yeah, that's that's how he got around that. Yeah, but this would continue for another two decades if you think about it. Ye, mm, not yes, with, it not, would. Well, for David, yes, but not for Tony. No, I'm talking musically. When you get musically, to yeah. And then the, the 90s, glam rock yeah. begat hair metal. Exactly, yeah. Oh, yes. I mean, it's all, there. there is that, that nexus. And this was it for glam rock. So, and I think I really appreciate the glam rock era because I do like the hair bands, but I like going back to the genesis of where it came from and th this definitely is that moment mm -hmm. on the 20th of march after a threesome the night before with a mutual female friend in north london uh making them actually late for their own wedding in, Bowie other, <laughs> in other words a tuesday for david bowie <laughs> right <laughs> bowie married angie and they did that at the Bromley Register's office in Beckingham, Kent. It was a very small affair because it was one of those, you know, like go to the courthouse kind of things. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't this massive thing. So he hadn't told any of his family members, but somehow his mother, Peggy, actually found out, stormed in and snatched the pen out of the judge's hand. Wow. And signed the registry as the witness. That, that's so, a great, I, that's a cinematic moment right there. Yeah. So uh, they hadn't, what's the nicest way to say this they had an open marriage it was the 70s uh she described their marriage as a marriage of convenience rather than a love story for the ages they actually got married so that she angie could get a permit to work i didn't think it was last david said before they got married i'm not really in love with you and i thought it's probably a good thing <laughs> they were made for each other so for Bowie, the 70s had started a little late. He described this as 1970 as a waste of a year because, you know, getting married, totally a waste of a year. And the man who sold the world was actually delayed in its release. That enhanced his sense of depression and pointlessness. The unreleased Tired of My Life presented him as a typical victim of the post-1960s malaise, which contained references to schizophrenia, paranoia, and delusion. Characterized by the heavy rock sounds of his new backing band, it was a marked departure from the acoustic guitar and folk style that he had within Space Oddity. And to promote it in the U.S., Mercury Records financed a coast-to-coast -coast publicity tour across America between January and February of 1971. He was interviewed by the radio stations and the media exploiting his androgynous appearances the original cover of the uk version unveiled two months later depicted the singer wearing a dress and he wore it during interviews uh, including the rolling stone article who john mendelson described him as ravishing almost disconcertingly rem reminiscent of lauren bacall wow. and, and a, yeah also um you know, I've been living in Bowie world for a while now, and I got to say, he was weird looking in the 60s and 70s. The mullet, as you described as, what was the, the term? Red, barbecue red. I said barbecue red mullet. His bar He had a barbecue red space mullet. He kind of did, yeah. Yeah, but his teeth were in business for themselves, but he he just, it no, 
he was my Bowie is like the nineteen nine Zoolander Bowie, mm. and um, I, like even when he did Labyrinth, he had a uh, uh what I can consider a never ending story mullet because <laughs> it was just it was a mullet, and but that mullet was extended in the both, the, in both directions. I mean, it was. It's a big ass mullet. And he had kind of that Iggy Pop sort of uh, physique going. Not quite yet. No, oh, that wasn't Not yet? quite okay. yet. He was he was always skinny. He's always been skinny. Mm-hmm. But he takes it to extremes in our next episode. And there's a reason why he takes it to extremes. So at one point, a male pedestrian produced a gun, pushed it into Bowie's face, and Bowie blew him a kiss and said, "Kiss my ass." Huh. Wow. Balls. <laughs> Pure balls. Yeah. I mean, he would he would just go into the streets dressed dressed like David Bowie. I'm David Bowie, and you're not pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. And he can do it all he wants because he's David effing Bowie. Okay, so during the tour, Bowie Bowie's observation of two seminal American proto punk artists led him to develop a concept that would eventually be found in the form of the Ziggy Stardust character. A melding of the personas of Iggy Pop with the music of Lou Reed, producing kind of the ultimate pop idol in Bowie's mind. And a girlfriend recalled him scrawling notes on a cocktail napkin like a, like a crazed rock star named Iggy or Ziggy. And on his return to England, he declared his intentions to create a character who looks like he landed from Mars. The Stardust surname was a tribute to the legendary Stardust Cowboy record he was given during the tour. Bowie would later cover the I Took a Trip on a Gemini Starship on 2002's Heathen. It was a cover of? Yes, okay. of the, the legendary Stardust Cowboy. Huh. He only began to survey the new decade with confidence on Hunky Dory, which was released in 1971. And what he saw was an exhausting landscape of fallen icons, sunken dreams, crying out for a change. I mean, Jesus, he's introspective. Hunky Dory found Visconti, Bowie's producer and bassist, supplanted in both the roles by Ken Scott and Trevor Bowler, respectively. The album saw a partial return of the fae pop singer of Space Oddity with a light fair such as Kooks, which was written for his son, which we'll talk about in a little bit. So Hunky Dory was not a commercial success in the beginning, but who's shocked? Literally, he's at this point, he's had one major success with Space Odyssey. He is so far a one-hit wonder. Which, which, which you could almost take as kind of a novelty hit. Yeah. I agree, yeah. Take, take out everything else you know about him and what's to come and how obviously talented he is. It's like he cashed in on a little bit of a fad, that being you know, going into outer space. You could almost have, have, at this point, written him off. Oh, you had that one little novelty hit where he's singing about going into space and taking protein pills and whatever. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And a lot of people looked at him like that at the time. They're like, oh. So, he sh- so, so basically he's Shib Wooly or, <laughs> or somebody like that. Yeah. Don't know who that is, but sure. He's the guy that did one-eyed, one-horned, flying, purple people eater. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So compared to the guitar driven rock sound of the man who sold the world, Bowie opted for a warmer, more melodic piano based pop rock style for Hunky Dory. His lyrics range from his compulsive nature uh, to his reinventions on changes to occultism and Nietzscheism on Oh You Pretty Things and Quicksand. 
and several songs make cultural and literary references. He's also inspired by his stateside tour uh, where he wrote songs dedicated to the three American icons, which was Andy Warhol, Bob Dylan, and Lou Reed. And the song Kooks is dedicated to Bowie's newborn kid. And the album artwork was photographed in monochrome and subsequently recolored, features Bowie in a pose that was inspired by the actresses of the Hollywood Golden Age, which if you guys remember, it's him looking, it's just his face of him looking up with slick back hair and, you know, it's like that. It's very right. Sunset Boulevard kind of. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It looks like he shot it in a Sears portrait studio. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like his, 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 his chin should have been planted on his fist, which was on his knee and with that looking, blue wist, look, looking of, wistfully off into nothing and with yeah. that blue kind of cloudy background yeah. yes and perhaps perhaps shot. even yes. a slightly ghost-like image of himself above his own head that was my <laughs> yeah. favorite sears photo trick oh uh, see we had we didn't do sears and i always wanted it and i'm angry that my parents never let me have it was glamour shots i was like oh god if only i could have some glamour shots and then as you got into the 80s, you could have like that electronic, almost Pink Floyd looking laser thing in the background. Yes. Mm -hmm. That was our high school or our yeah. our, mm -hmm. our elementary school pictures were always those like, you, 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 like the yeah. neon. Exactly. In the yeah. Back. yeah. Upon release, Hunky Dory and its lead single changes received a little bit of promotion from RCA, who were wary that Bowie would change his image almost immediately. And, and I get this concern. He did it a lot. But despite very positive reviews from British and American press, the album initially sold poorly and failed to chart at all. Wow. And it was only after the commercial breakthrough of Bowie's 1972 follow-up, The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and The Spiders from Mars, that Hunky Dory itself became a commercial success, peaking at number three on the UK album charts. And retrospectively, Hunky Dory has actually been critically acclaimed as one of Bowie's best works, which I completely agree with. And if it's featured on several lists of the greatest albums of all time. With the context of his career, it's considered to be the album where Bowie started to become Bowie and he began to develop his distinct voice. Hmm. So I'm going to give you guys a choice, okay? We can either listen to Changes or we Oof. can listen to Life on Mars. Oof. So I'm going to let you guys... Oh, I love Changes. One of my faves. It is a great song. It's hard to deny. Yeah. yeah. I, I, vote, I vote changes. I got nothing. Okay. So we're going to go for changes. <sighs> so close that Life on Mars is great, too. Life on Mars is awesome. But no, They're both great songs, but changes is just... And we get to hear him play the saxophone at the very end of it, I guess. Yeah. So. There is a swanky sax outro, yes. Here we go. David Bowie's changes. so sweet so I turned myself to face me but I've never caught a glimpse how the others must see the faker I'm much too fast to take that test change it turn and face the strain change it 
sighs, but never leave the stream of warm and permanent sand. So the days float through my eyes, but still the days seem the same. And these children that you spit on as they try to change their worlds are immune to your consultations. They're quite aware of what they're going through. Ch -ch -ch changes. song it's classic so good iconic please don't ever remake that song <laughs> nobody no believe, believe it alone that's that might be the first bowie song i ever heard actually and um, it obviously it came out it came out before i was born but that's the first song of his i was conscious of hearing yeah and really and really liking and i, I don't even remember how old i was at the time but it, uh, that's that's probably the one yeah and and the choice between that and life on mars is is really a tough one and there's a great version of Life on Mars done by Jessica Lange mm -hmm. on American Horror Story Season 4 Freak Show. And it's done. American, Hor American Horror Story? We're going to leave it at that. So, uh, fun <laughs> fact. Fun God, fact. I'd love to watch that one. Fun fact. <laughs> the current edition of The Record Collector, which this is from an article from September 2001, had an excellent feature on The Velvet Underground, which actually included a meeting between David and Lou Reed. As Lou remembered by a Lou lookalike, Doug Yule. So the question was, is it true that David Bowie came to one of your shows in 1971 on the UK tour and started talking to you under the assumption that you were Lou Reed? And it said, that was actually in New York at the Dom. I remember the incident well. England was one of the prime sources of rock and roll back then. And of course, we were all Anglophiles to some degree. So I remember this English kid coming backstage and I was holding forth as if I was somebody feeling really self-important as the leader of this band, the band that he's talking about is the, the Velvet Underground. He came in and obviously assumed that I was Lou Reed. So I had to explain that Lou wasn't there. It was only a few years ago that I had heard the story and realized that that English kid was David Bowie and I had never heard of him. <laughs> oh, wow. So, so here's David Bowie's retelling of that night. 
so I had come back from New York and I caught the last performance of the Velvet Underground, a band that I had admired tremendously since around 66, 67. And on that tiny bastion of Velvet Underground fans in London at the time, before they were generally known. And so I had gone to the Electric Circus to see the gig. I watched the entire show and there were not that many people in the audience because their star had begun to dim in New York. The whole band was there. Lou Reed was singing these songs and I thought it was just tremendous. And I was singing along with the band, stuck right there at the apron of the stage, waiting for the man, white light, white heat, heroin, all that kind of stuff. And after the show, I went backstage, knocked on the door and I said, is Lou Reed in? I'd love to talk to him. I'm from England, cuz, and I'm in music too. And he's a bit of a hero to me. The guy said, wait here. And Lou comes out and we start talking on a bench for about a quarter of an hour about writing songs and and, and what was it like to be Lou Reed? And after all that, and I was floating on cloud nine and went back to my hotel room. I said this to a guy to New York. I've seen the Velvet Underground. And I got to talk to Lou Reed for 15 minutes. Yeah. And he said, yeah, you know, Lou Reed left the band last year. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a guy that looks like Lou Reed and that's Doug Yule. And he's the guy that took over. I, I thought that was an imposter. I was like, wow, that's incredible. It really doesn't matter because to me, as far as I was concerned, I had talked to Lou Reed. <laughs> so he came back to England and one of his memories came back to him. And so he wrote Queen Bitch as sort of an homage to Lou Reed. Queen Bitch. So, <laughs> um, oh, that's excellent. And, you know, he did, David Bowie ended up producing Walk on the Wild Side for Lou Reed. Uh, you mentioned that. Yeah, I forgot yeah. about it. Yeah, so eventually he did meet the real Lou Reed. But they actually met the they met the actual guy. But that, so that would be like me going to Vegas and meeting like some Elvis impersonator and going, you know who I hung out with. <laughs> <laughs> so on May 30th, 1971, Zoe Bowie was born to David and Angie. But you actually might know him better now as Duncan Jones. He's best known for directing films like Moon, Source Code, Warcraft and mute he directed warcraft yes oh wow the much maligned Warcraft. i mean it's a video game to movie adaptation so the Which, bar is pretty low yeah um but source code was interesting and for moon he actually won a bafta award huh. for outstanding debut by a british writer director and producer and he <laughs> had something that his dad never had which was the ability to be born in a hospital. Hey, <laughs> modern medicine. So right after he was born, his father actually wrote the songs Kooks and Oh You Pretty Things for Hunky Dory in honor of Zoe slash Duncan. Slash Duncan, yeah. Now, his birth was the one and only time that Angie ever saw David cry. Wow, when his son was born. Yeah. Mostly raised by a Scottish nanny, Marion Skeen, Jones spent time growing up in London, Berlin, and Switzerland. He attended the first and second grade at the Commonwealth American School, which is now the international school in Lusanne. Two years into their marriage, David proudly just declared himself gay in an interview with Melody Maker, during which his open marriage to Angie, Bowie made his modus operandi to explore his sexuality. I'd say he was exploring it a little bit before this point. He was quite explorative. Yes. If that's a, if that's a word I just made up. <laughs> Bowie spoke again about his sexuality once more in September of 1976 in an interview with Playboy, which he declared, it's true, I'm bisexual, but I can't deny that I've used that fact very well. I suppose it's the best thing that ever happened to me. And for those wondering, no, the Rolling Stone song, Angie, is probably not about 
her, though according to her, she did find David in bed with Mr. McJagger after she got home one day after a work trip. Okay, because I, I had heard that and I didn't know if it was a rumor. She is she tells the story in her book. Okay, so it comes from her. It comes from her, but of course, like mm, I don't know, because there's no one else to Yeah, and I mean up. and also this is a time when sexuality I think was largely undefined. Yeah. You're coming out of the 50s, which was very specific about what was sexually appropriate. And yes, I'm doing air quotes there. Uh, the 70s. Years. Yeah. So so I guess I'm only saying for David Bowie to declare that, I, I feel like the terminology or the appropriation of that terminology wasn't quite there yet. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Because in the 70s, when people slept with you know, both sexes, they were, quote, gay, but that wasn't entirely accurate true yeah. and i think now that we have more of a an understanding of sexuality mm-hmm. per se and more of an acceptance of sexuality really it was illegal at this point for david to say that yeah he was yeah 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 so you had people like elton john in the public eye already you had people like rock hudson well, Rock Hudson was way covered up, though, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah. And Elton John, I don't think, had come out at this point, had he? I, I don't know about the timelines, and don't look at Rocket Man for any kind of answers. Yeah, it doesn't really spell them out for you. No, but but at this point, you had people that you thought might be gay, but you didn't know. But you might, you know, and it it was a very gray area. But at this point, like it was still in some places illegal to be gay yeah so um but yeah going back to the whole angie thing like you don't know if it's true or not but i'm gonna take angie for her word and the thing is that a lot of people malign her they kind of look at her like like they look at yoko ono hmm but I think we have to take the two sides approach because there are people that absolutely adore her. Yeah, she's got fans, absolutely. And there are people that hate her. And I'm kind of in the camp of I like her because, you know, she was she was never a liar. She's mm-hmm. always very open and honest. Even when she married David, she was like, this is a marriage of convenience. I need to get myself a work permit. And, and they were both okay with this. And they were yeah. totally fine with it. So... You know, again, I'm going to pose the question, what's to hate about Angie? Because I'm kind of on the side of the, I don't, I don't see anything wrong with her. But also, though, she is estranged from Duncan. Mm. I don't think Duncan has spoken to her since he was 13. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it's a rough thing. So let's move on from something kind of heavy to a fun fact. Fun fact. In 1972, Bowie released... The Jean Genie, which he admits was a clever pun on the name Jean Genet. Sure. Okay. The song was clearly informed by the Velvet Underground, and David has described it as a smorgasbord, <laughs> kind of smashing up Iggy Pop and Lou Reed and Americana and all this stuff. And there is a lyric in the song that says he's so simple-minded that he can't drive his module, Jay gave Jim Kerr, the idea for his band name. Simple Minds. Simple Minds. Yeah. Yep. So that was a fun fact. That is fun. Yeah. Ziggy Stardust. Woo! Love Ziggy Stardust. 
it's actually not a concept album. Which surprised me. Yeah, it was not meticulously planned or methodically crafted. And it just, it's been scrutinized for like 45 years. But the fact is, it just is kind of this album that focuses on one central character. Mm -hmm. But it's not truly a concept album. It's more of a story album than a concept album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars has been described as the tale of an oversexed alien rock star who has achieved fame just as Earth enters the final five years of his existence. Hmm. Ziggy falls victim to his own success and becomes rock and roll suicide. This is possibly in hindsight, but not what he actually set out to record. It wasn't supposed to be a magnum opus. It's just a collection of songs that somehow you know, circled around a a central figure. So how did he come up with the name Ziggy? According to a Rolling Stone article, David admitted that it was the only Christian name that he could come up with that started with the letter Z. (laughs) Nice. So right now I'm going to play you guys Ziggy Stardust. Because this has been in my head for about six weeks now. Played guitar, jamming good with weird and gilly, and the spiders from Mars. He played it left hand, but made it too far. Became the special man, then we were Ziggy's band. Ziggy really sang, screwed up eyes and screwed down hairdo. Like some cat from Japan He could lick on by smiling He could leave until high Became on so loaded man Well hung and snow white tan
Okay, and we're back. Uh, easily top five Bowie songs of all time. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say it. God, that has been living in my head. And it's interesting because uh, one of my friends, she was a big music person and fan of David Bowie, and named her dog Ziggy in honor Aww. of Ziggy Stardust. Yep. So upon the release of the Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, it actually received favorable reviews by music critics, which is rare for Bowie. Yeah. At, at this point. James Johnson of the New Music Express said that the album had a little bit more pessimism than on the previous release and called the album fine. <laughs> Again, take take fine. Hey, hey, you know, yeah. take fine. Fine is good. <laughs> Michael Watson, Melody Maker, published that while Ziggy Stardust had no well-defined storyline, it had odd songs and references to the business of being a pop star that overall add to the strong sense of a biographical drama. Like I said, I think a story album is a better term. It's not a concept, it's a story. Right. Yeah. Ziggy Stardust was the physical expression of Bowie's intellectual fascination with stardom and the power of exceptional individuals fed by Warhol and Nietzsche, which he did. And again, this was in the 60s. He actually met Andy Warhol. And I guess they didn't really hit it off, even though David Bowie really liked him. Mm -hmm. Me personally, I don't care for Andy Warhol. I think that his uh, artistry is trite and vapid and quite off-putting but there are some people who love Andy Warhol so if you love Andy Warhol please don't hate me <laughs> art is art for art's sake and we all have our expressions and our opinions and the ones that are expressed by me here on rock and roll heaven of course do not reflect in you so and just speaking of rock and roll heaven you know this whole concept of a musician reflecting on their time in the spotlight is something not unheard of you know, musicians, Bob Seger did it, uh, but one of our own episodes, Neil Peart, you'll remember, wrote extensively about how he felt about that. And, you know, a lot of it, again, the roots go back to Bowie, like so many other things. Yeah. So in 1979, there was just like this general feeling of panic and fear. Because we were about to be born. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, my brother's well on his way. Oh, yeah, I he's, think he's, T, yeah. Is, T is well on his way. Got it. But there was a growing fear that time and resources were running out. And bestsellers include Hal Lindsey's The Last Great Planet Earth. Hollywood's best director struck a note with films that were just as unnerving. Mm. And I mean, like, it was like all of the headlines in the 1970s were just downers. Yeah, kind of like the 2020 all over. Well, <laughs> yeah, 2020 would become. And then there was Bowie singing that. We've got five years and my brain hurts a lot. And Ziggy was actually killed off after a year because he had to die. Is that Bowie's phrasing? That's that's Bowie's phrasing. On the 3rd of July, that was the final night of the Ziggy's Stardust Tour, which is now known as the Retirement Gig. A film crew was present that night and the stars were out. Uh, Rod Stewart, the Jaggerses, how do you say Jaggerses? The Jag Jaggers? Is it Jag one Jag the Jaggers. The Jaggers. It's multiple Jaggers. There are many Jaggers. And the Ringos. The, <laughs> the stars. Star God. The stars. The star you already said the stars were out. Okay. So um he he did all his great songs. Uh all the young dudes, oh you pretty things, moonish daydreams, freaky costume changes galore. And he then emerged with that legendary sphere on his head, which had been applied by makeup artists. And Jeff Beck joined them on stage to play along with Gene Genie and 
uh, Love Me Do, Round Around bought David's Harmonica out, and Suffragette City was played, and then the crowd was freaking out about that. Basically, it was just like the concert. Like, it was the concert. And just when everybody thought it couldn't get any better, David came out on stage and said, well, you know what? I'm going to let David say it because I did find a clip of this. Not only is it the last show of the tour, but it's the last show that we'll ever do. Thank you. So you can see, like, from that clip, people freaked out. There was absolute pandemonium after he made that announcement. There was a stampede for the stage. And the woman that wrote the, the David Bowie book Heroes, Leslie Ann Jones, which I think is a pretty darn good Bowie biography, but she was like, yeah, people freaked out. They were rushing the stage, trying to snatch anything they could from Ziggy as he left the stage. And she's like, I just hung back and then read about the after party <laughs> in the papers. So <laughs> David was actually really happy that Ziggy was dead because it would take him up to two hours to do the makeup. But he also started feeling like super trapped in this character. And David reflected at one point that Ziggy had become his whole personality and that he was truly affected by it and what he brought into himself. And it had become really dangerous because he was having doubts about his sanity, which you have to remember is a very touchy point for him because his family does have that history of mental illness. But, but other people who have adopted characters have had the same thing. They've had to deal with the same thing. Alice Cooper has talked about that previously oh, yeah. really yeah the, the struggles that he of re, having to reconcile him being him with him being alice cooper so i don't think it's uncommon mm. well you also play a character for so long that you kind of lose you, you even recently my favorite show ended which was supernatural and jitson Ackles, who played dean winchester on the show for 15 years just like this is something that will live inside me forever i can't separate myself from this so you have that, that persona for so long that you, you start forgetting who you are and only start behaving like that other person. So I can, I can imagine, though, like dealing with schizophrenia in your family, that would have to be rough for him to, to kind of reconcile the difference between himself and Ziggy. Right. So we're going to play, we're going to have another little song break here because I went a little nuts on the songs, but you know what? It's David Bowie, and if he doesn't have like 30 songs in one episode, what am I even doing? We are going to play Suffragette City. Yeah. Just put my spine out of place. Hey man, my school is 
songs it took me years to figure out what the actual lyrics were suffragette city yep still i just don't yeah know. i know because they're written down that's about it i know the phrase wham bam thank you ma'am and <laughs> that is it <laughs> here's a little fun story not a fun fact fun, fun story yeah there we go <laughs> on january 3rd the band went to the top of the pops and they did they 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 basically filmed their spot for Top of the Pops. And in the studio next door, they were recording the TV show, Doctor Who. <laughs> and so the producer of Doctor Who saw the band in the canteen downstairs and the spiders were asked, what characters were they playing on Doctor Who? It's pretty awesome. <laughs> awesome. Love it. Yes. Uh, it's about 1973 when he's in Rome and... His primary obsessions now are of work and sex and cocaine. Huh. Lots of cocaine. 1973, ladies and gentlemen. Yep. Yes. Workaholic Dave had become... I thought you said the 70s sucked. That sounds awesome. <laughs> I mean... What did you do? Uh, yeah, blow and sex and some music. Okay, cool. Yeah, but they had like <laughs> disco and really itchy suits. We're not quite the disco yet. Little, no, little, little, tiny bit, little bit later. A little bit later, but they still had itchy suits. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah, so he was well on his way to being addicted to sex and work and cocaine. And um, it was a turnaround for David because in the beginning, him and Angie were almost completely anti-drug and they barely drank. They were dead. Yeah, I mean, the thing was, I think he smoked weed which is, you know, a plant. Not so, a drug in the 70s. Not, not, well, not really. I mean, well, well, so is cocaine, really. But <laughs> well, slightly, you, more po- slightly more potent plant. Heroin, too. Yeah, yeah. So they were dead against it. And the fact was, they used to be like the picture of health and energy. But David kind of got drawn into that cycle of being a rock star and was exposed to more and more things but it comes to a point where you have no reason to say no because it's always around you and everyone else is doing it and it's completely normal and uh it makes you feel safe when everybody else is doing it and you're like oh okay i'll try this too and so he's you know kind of falling into that trap of work cocaine work cocaine (laughs) thing that a lot of people sex 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 Sex, sex, cocaine, sex, cocaine, tour, 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 sex, blow. Work, two, sex, sex, two, 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 sex, sex, two, sex. Yeah. So it's about this time that they decide that they need to move out of their Camelot, which I think was still Haddon Hall at this point, because it started to become overrun with fans that were way more aggressive than the ones that had been there in the beginning. So they would stand outside his door and sing and chant and demanded attention. And a couple even broke in when there was no one at home. What? Yeah. And they mm. took photos of each other on David's couch and sitting on his toilet and laying in his bed. And apparently someone broke in one night. I pooped on David's loo. Oh, there it is. There it is. There it is. Someone had a bath in his tub. And one person even claimed to have broken in while Angie was out and hid in her closet and just hung out one night while she slept. So she came home, this person was still in her closet. Mm. Mm. That's not creepy at all. (laughs) Oh, that's so gross. It's like a Mr. Nightmare. 
Yeah. Uh, so October 73, they set up a home in a rented flat on Hall Road, which belonged to Avengers actress Diana Rigg. Oh, I love I Diana Rigg. I guys would like that. I do love yeah. that. The late Diana Rigg. She's wonderful. But apparently their behavior uh, wasn't up to the management company's standards. Would you describe it as deviant? Possibly. Possibly deviant. Deviant. I'm, I'm assuming that it's deviant behavior. <laughs> So then they found 89 Oakley Street, which was a four-story house just off King's Road, which is around the corner from the Jaggers's, Jaggers, mm-hmm. Jagai, the Jagai. The Jagai. I think, think Jagai is the way to go, yeah. <laughs> so Angie threw herself into redecorating, which seems to be something that she really liked doing. And so they installed a music room and got all the panels and the boards and carpets and all that good stuff. But it should be noted that this house had a central bear pit. Now, does anyone know what a bear pit is? I thought I did. Is yeah. that like um, what the guy was stuck in in Silence of the Lambs? It um, puts the lotion on its skin. Sort of, but not as creepy. Where you and keep okay. your bear. <laughs> this was a place where uh, it was a sunken area in the floor where they put a ton of pillows where visitors could sleep or you know um get to know each other a little better all right you know in the biblical sense they did some sleuthing what that, talking- a group of bears is called a sleuth oh so i thought that was relevant okay <laughs> what part are you watching <laughs> But a group of bears is called a sleuth. Look it a up. Sleuth. Yeah. Good job. Uh, I, I try. I, I give and I give and I give. Uh, collective animal pronouns. <laughs> Thursday, April 5th, he arrived at Yokohama, Japan. And uh, Kasani Yamamoto presented David Bowie with nine new costumes to add to the five that he had given him while he was visiting in New York. Uh, they're based on traditional no drama costumes. And if you guys uh, don't know, no is a form of theater in japan it's it, i don't think it's the same as kabuki no it is different from kabuki you're right about that yeah, yeah. so so it's it, it's a different kind of drama but he took inspiration from kabuki as well correct oh yes yeah. he actually uh funny enough one of the kabuki stars tomasa boro later showed bowie how to apply kabuki makeup so oh, wow yeah i mean he was well, well, wasn't one of the hallmarks of early Kabuki that men played the role of women? Yeah, Correct. that's that's all theater. Well, there you go. Drag, drag, the, the word drag came from Shakespeare, which was dressed as girls. The stage direction. Yeah. So you'll see actually a lot of the Japanese influence on his next character, which was the Aladdin Sane character. David Bowie now becomes a problem when it comes to traveling. And this is why I feel like a kinship with David Bowie, because he refused to fly. <laughs> so he's in Japan and will not fly. It's like Whoopi Goldberg. Yeah, he won't right. fly. He had a premonition that he'd be killed in a plane crash if he did. If nothing happens by 1967, I'll start to fly again. And just as a side note, Bowie actually resumed flying in May 1977. So he actually did stick with the I'm not flying till 1976. Wait, 76 or so? Okay. No, he, he, he didn't fly until 1977. Okay. Okay. Which makes world tours a little tricky, but... Especially when you originate on an island. Right. Flying in 1977, but 1973, he said, there are three ways you can travel deluxe. Two bunks in a simple compartment sharing a toilet and a bathroom with the rest of the carriage. 
that's what I had. Then there's first class, which is four bunks per compartment and hard class bunks right up there with both sides with people sleeping on the floor. Mm -hmm. In 1973, Bowie returned from a show in Japan via a long, grim train journey through the USSR and the Eastern Bloc, arriving home telling his wife, Angie, after what I've seen of this world, I've never been so damn scared in my life. Wow. That's what wow. happens when you go on a train through the USSR yeah, in the 70s. like the gulag, right? Yeah. Lee Black Childers said, I was taking pictures of David and sneaking pictures of the soldiers who were on the platform with us, but unfortunately they caught me and the soldiers came and tried to get my camera, but I was fighting back. David began to film it all. When they got really crazy, they were trying to get David's camera and trying to arrest us. Two burly female train attendants intervened and carried them back onto the train while fending off the guards. And they made it home safely after months on the road. Jeez. So early female train attendant. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's a, there's your band name. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a casting. Ladies and gentlemen, right welcome to the stage. Burly female train attendants. What? All right. Who's ready for a fun fact? Fun fact. Okay. Oh, Mon I love this one. Monty Python. The Monty Python troupe was in Edinburgh for their first farewell tour, sharing the post house hotel with Bowie's people who were partying a little late. What? Yeah. No. This is a, a journal entry for Michael Palin yes. in 1973. Went to bed, could not get to sleep, owing to the presence of David Bowie and his acolytes in the hotel. Bowie is currently the hottest touring property in Britain, having recently played to 18,000 in Earl's Court. Tonight, Bowie was in Edinburgh and staying a couple doors down on the same floor as my, myself. They weren't exactly noisy. There was just so many of them. From 2 a.m. to 3 a.m. and beyond, it was like trying to sleep through the invasion of Poland. <laughs> I love Michael Palin and feel he's one of the most underrated members of Monty Python. I just want to say yes. that. Yeah. On Monday, July 23rd, Bowie became the first solo artist to have all five of his RCA albums in the UK Top 40, three of them in the Top 15. Wow. Bye. Yeah, on October 19th, Pinups was released, and the photo session for that was shot in July, was ostensibly a Vogue cover and an idea that Twiggy had, and her partner had successfully pitched this idea to the editor. So it's like Ziggy, sort of, with the, with the barbecue red space mullet, staring forward with Twiggy, who appears to be bald, and in mom face, uh, with her head on his shoulder. Yeah, it's a really interesting makeup scheme, but it's weird. It's frankly weird. Yeah, it was actually supposed to be a Vogue cover because they had pitched it to Vogue. So the photographer and the makeup artist came over and showed the test Polaroids to Bowie. And he said, hey, can I use that for my record sleeve? And Justin was like, I don't think so, because this is for Vogue. But Justin was like, how many albums do you think you're going to sell? And he just said, a million. He was like, well, here you go. This is, <laughs> this is your next album cover. Nice. And, and then, so, you know, the photographer, Justin, got back to London and told Vogue what happened, and Vogue never hired him again. Wow. So, so kind of funny, kind of sad, but I'm sure he made money. So just torpedoed yeah. his career. He, but he made money. Yes. He probably made money. Yeah. So Monday, December 31st, uh, RCA gave a luncheon at a prestigious restaurant, which I apparently took the restaurant name out. So whoops, uh, in Bowie's honor, because he had six different albums in the chart for five weeks in 1973. 
and five in the top 50 for 19 consecutive weeks. So it's not an Arby's is what you're saying. God, it better not be an Arby's. Bowie responded, I don't know what to say. I feel like a rock and roll star. At least it keeps the kids on the streets. Thanks to everyone who bought or were given the albums. Eh. So he frames his album presentation described awards David Bowie for outstanding musical achievements from your friends at RCA. And it actually meant something to him. Do you think about what he went through in the sixties and you got to be proud of what you're, you're, he's accomplished at this point. Certainly. And I think it was all because of Ziggy Stardust because people started to revisit his back catalog, which made that more prestigious, which made his future stuff more prestigious. Cause when he came onto Aladdin saying it just went insane. Who loves Diamond Dogs? Is that a rhetorical question? No. Oh. <laughs> no. Who loves Diamond Dogs? And Diamond Dogs is actually kind of assembled from an incomplete concept album. It was a marriage of two dystopians, the Great Police State of 1984 and the insurgence of the Anarchy of a Clockwork Orange, both of which I am extremely big fans of. Yeah. So with Diamond Dogs... He actually wanted to do a play based on 1984, and I think the Orwell estate shut him down from doing it, Hmm. which was also, I think, a reference to Metropolis. I mean, it's kind of all pop-culturally incestuous. Anyway, uh, American cities were facing bankruptcy and oil crisis, and Bowie imagined that his tribe of feral urchins the diamond dogs would use roller skates because there was no oil for cars Hmm. this is uh this is normal lines of thinking you have no oil for cars so what do you do you roller skate the roller skate there you go this ain't rock and roll this is genocide Uh, tony visconti this is a quote from tony visconti he said i'm having trouble mixing and finishing this album so why don't we get together again he asked if I could recommend a good studio, and I said I was building my own, so he wanted to come and see it. And when he did, it obviously felt right, and he decided that he must finish the album there. We didn't even have chairs at the time, but he said he didn't. it didn't matter. And the next day, he went to Habitat or someplace like that, and this big van showed up in front of my house, and out came tables and chairs and lounges and all that. He completely furnished my studio so we could finish the album there. We actually did our first day's work, and before all the stuff arrived, sitting on the carpenter's horse you, you guys know what the carpenter's horses are right i thought you meant like uh Richard yeah friends. okay it's like yeah, a they, they weren't sitting <laughs> on the carpenters ow you're really hurting me david that was my impression of karen carpenter <laughs> why is she british she's from, she's from california yeah that's that's a <laughs> interesting accent for her to have. yeah so the carpenter's horse was it's the it's like a sawhorse. Yeah, sawhorse. So yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you put your wood on it. <laughs> so David put his wood on a lot of. Well, so when the truck pulled up, he just looked at Tony <laughs> and was like, "Well, we can't spend another day sitting on wooden horses." So he was nice enough to completely. <laughs> wait till he's done. <laughs> okay, I'm good. So he turned to Tony when the truck came and he's like, well, we couldn't spend another day sitting on wooden horses. I don't know why Karen Carpenter has a British accent and David sounds like a 1930s radio announcer. (laughs) 
Come on, all you cool cats, not jicks. We're going to listen to some Ziggy Stardust. <laughs> Watch out for that Hitler. He's a bad egg. <laughs> Rainy days and Mondays always get me down. Down. It's kind of Australian. I don't know what else going for. Don't you remember the way that you called me, baby? <laughs> that sounds like, like Ringo like Starr. <laughs> It's like my impression of a horse, which everyone overlooked. You're like, Burr. <sighs> all right, we're back. Okay. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Ad Visor, which has the easiest name to pronounce, it's A-D-V-I-S-S-E-R, which is the host of a Dutch music show, Pop Pop, presented Bowie with the Edison Award for the most popular male vocalist, and then poured two glasses of, oh, oh God, this has too many, Shivelspickle? too many vowels and too many consonants. Shivelspickle, it's, it's called an old fisherman's drink, is it like grog? I don't know. Yeah. But it tastes like old fishermen, according to Bowie. <laughs> and he would know. He would probably know, yes. David, Bowie's, David Bowie's costume was inspired by Carmen, the flamingo rock group who appeared on the 1980s floor show in October. Here's where we meet Halloween Jack. Um, this is a, a quote from David Bowie from 1993. I had conjunctivitis. <laughs> so I, I made the most of it and dressed like a pirate. Stopped just short of the parrot. I had this most incredible jacket that I was wearing this night. It was a bottle green bolero jacket that Freddie made me. And I got an artist to paint using the applique technique, the Supergirl from a Russian comic on the back. But I took the jacket off during the press conference and someone stole it. I just want to say I had conjunctivitis, so I dressed like a pirate is about the most Bowie thing anybody can do. Probably. Yep. So the Edison, which is the Dutch equivalent to the Grammys, included a performance by Tony Orlando <laughs> and Dawn singing their hit, Tie a Yellow Ribbon. Oh, Orlando stopped singing the last verse when he spotted Bowie and Angie in the audience saying, I can't believe what I see. Is it you? That's Tony Orlando. That's awesome. I always looked at Tony Orlando as such a rock. Can't believe he would just... Stop singing and fanboy. In mid-March, plans for the Western show of the 1984 musical were ditched in favor of an extensive American tour with a strong theatrical element. Broadway designer Jules Fisher flew to London to meet with Bowie, who briefed him on the concept for the Diamond Dog stage show. Fisher then brought in Mark Rabbits to design the Hunger City set. Jules Fisher from a 1985 interview. For Diamond Dogs, he had an understanding of German expressionism, art, and film. He wanted that image. He said, I see a town like the one in the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Hmm. David gave me three clues. Power, Nuremberg, and Fritz Lang's Metropolis. I do appreciate German expressionism. Mm -hmm. I, I really do. I think it's a really film, interesting yeah. film movement. There were four towers that were the basis of the design. They were made of newsprint that could be torn apart. So Bowie could actually climb one of the towers and destroy the building during the concert. <laughs> 
there was also a bridge across there and during the concert lowered down onto the stage so he could step off of it and sing downstage and then it would raise up again and there was a door that opened and a cherry picker arm came forward and extended out over the first six rows of the audience interesting so this was like a spectacle show clearly yeah high concept on angie's recommendation bowie brought in tony basil yay wow yeah, she's a choreographer working with the Lockers, an urban dance troupe that... Hey, Mickey! That Tony Basil? Yes, that Tony Basil. Wow. She's, well, remember, above everything choreographer. else... Choreographer. She's a, a, a famed choreographer, yes. Definitely. Yeah. So she was actually working with the Lockers, which was an urban dance troupe with a street sense that fitted that concept that David Bowie was going with with the Diamond Dogs. Tony Basil taught him things like, don't ever waste a movement. If you have to put your microphone down, do it with a flourish. If you have to walk from one side of the stage to the other, do it with a great dramatic gesture. Throw your head back before you put your first step out. Uh, we talked about live theater and mime. This is Tony. This is a quote from Tony Basil from 1985. We talked about the living theater and mime. David had this idea about having ropes tied around the necks of some of the dancers. And I told him he could do it if he were careful and he yelled to Corinne, the Diamond Dogs number is back in. <laughs> so he's just super happy that he got to like put collars on people, I guess. Pretty much. Yeah. So if you're wondering who Corinne is, her name's Corinne Schwab. Okay. Given the nickname Coco by Jeff McCormick, who was, if you'll remember, David Bowie's uh, childhood friend. Okay. She was actually planning to move on from the London mainman office where she had been keeping her creditors at bay. But she now got a job assisting David Bowie, and I think if my studies are correct, she would be David Bowie's personal assistant for the rest of his life. Oh, wow. From yeah. 19, was it 74? 1975. 1975, okay. Yeah. So, Coco Schwab. This is a quote from Coco. I got started working with David by answering an ad in the Evening Standard in London asking for Girl Friday needed for a busy office. Hmm. And I had run my finger down the page and stopped there in a totally arbitrary fashion. I needed a job to earn my expense money for my trip my photographer friend and I were planning to take. We had a magazine interested in us doing a story of two girls on a Greyhound bus tour of America. Hmm. Kind of a Jack Kerouac on the road style, but two girls as opposed to two guys. They were only willing to pay a certain amount up front, and we thought we'd save up a little bit more and get some short-term jobs. When I was ready to leave Main Man six months later... David called and asked me why I was leaving. I explained about this Greyhound bus tour of America thing. He paused for a minute and said, how about a limousine tour of America? And I paused for about a nanosecond and said something like, uh, okay. Needless to say, I don't think my photographer friend ever truly forgave me. <laughs> uh, but she will stick around for the majority of David's life. Wow. Gloria Harris had moved on, so David appointed Coco as his personal assistant, a position she did actually hold until David Bowie passed away. Wow. So on Sunday, August 11th through Thursday, August 22nd, so if you'll note that's 11 days, that was the Young American recording session at Studio A North, Studio A North Sigma Sound Records Studios uh, in Philadelphia with the producer being Tony, his, yep, yeah. yeah, Tony. Bowie had been impressed by the studio when Ava Cherry was recording there in July. And if you guys don't know who Ava Cherry is, um, I didn't actually touch on her at all, but she is an American singer and a model 
uh, mostly known for her relationship with David between 1972 and 1975. And first heard about David due to the influence of her agent, who was an early fan and gave her a copy of the Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust. Mm -hmm. So basically she was buds with him for a very long time. And uh, there is a great website called BowieGoldenYears.com where I pulled a lot of the individual events from. And they do a fantastic job of giving a linear timeline from 1970 to 1980 with some fantastic photos. But it's almost like a live journal of every single day Bowie lived. So I, I definitely, if you're a fan of Bowie, please go check out Bowie's Golden Years. It's a really great website. Anyway, he, he really liked the sound and was impressed by the studio when Ava was recording there. So he also liked their connection with the Gamble and Huff recordings. And Bowie and the Entourage stayed at the Barclay on Rittenhouse Square for the duration of the sessions at Sigma. Now, Cracked Actor was a documentary on Bowie's experiences in America for the BBC's Omnibus program. And it's one of the first real times that he's able to kind of stretch his legs in front of the cameras. And this is a quote from the producer, Alan Yentob. God, I hope I'm saying that right. I got a phone call out of the blue from Tony DeFreeze. And I have not talked about Tony DeFreeze, not to, not to um, ignore the, the quote, but Tony DeFreeze was the main man, records, and he, whoo, he was a dude. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to go into him because it's so much of a volatile kettle of fish that I'm not going to open that up. Can of worms, kettle of fish. What is Same it? Thing, it? Same thing. Anyway, I got a phone call out of the blue from Tony DeFries, the self-proclaimed emperor of the fast-expanding Bowie dynasty, trading under the name Main Man. I'd be interested in making, would I be interested in making a film about David as he embarked on his Diamond Dogs tour of North America? I met Bowie in New York and he promised to make time for me to get my film made in the midst of staggering a staggeringly demanding schedule. When I started, I wanted to make a film about him called The Collector, a man who seems to adopt other people's gestures, presence, or personas, or personalities. The idea had occurred to Alan the year before when Bowie described himself on Russell Hartley's show as a collector. I collect things. With the album considered to be finished, Bowie worked on ideas for the sleeve design. He settled on the design based on the cover of the latest issue of a magazine called After Dark. The hand-tinted portrait of his tour choreographer, Tony, Tony Basil, by photographer Eric Stevens Jacobs evoked that old Hollywood glamour. He called Jacobs in New York and flew him to Los Angeles for the shoot, which took place on a Hollywood soundstage. Uh, back in his New York studio, Jacobs replicated the style of his previous portrait, including the hand coloring and the hand painting of the cigarette smoke curling upwards toward the title. So what I'll do is I'll post uh, both pictures on our social media so you guys can see it because it's a really beautiful piece of artwork. Mm -hmm. Okay, are you ready for a fun story? Fun story! Sunday, September the 8th at the Universal Amphitheater Los Angeles. Following the final amphitheater concert, Bowie headed across town for a party for Al Green, hosted by Tito Jackson. Oh, man. And his wife, Dee Dee, at their Los Angeles home. And that is the, the, the space that became the Gibson Amphitheater, correct? I think. Yeah, I think it did. The Jackson Five had invited Bowie after attending his concert. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. This is a quote from David. Michael spent much of the evening asking me about the production and how we built the city and where the ideas came from for all of the different visuals. The two talked about the choreography for the song Light Insane. 
I was taught the backwards walk by Tony Basil, who choreographed the Lockers, which was one of the first Black street dancing troops. So basically the Marcel Marceau walk, but propelled backwards. It didn't have a name at that time. And she devised it with them and taught it to me for the Diamond Dog Show. It's entirely possible that he copied that walk forth, fourth uh, hand, so to speak. I believe the nature of the show made a big impression on him. A report in the Rock and Soul Songs magazine reported the exact opposite. As guests enjoyed the cake and champagne, both Green and Michael were seen on the dance floor teaching rock superstar David Bowie how to do the robot with members of the Soul Train gang joining in. <laughs> wow. So just so you guys know, no, we're not suggesting that Michael Jackson ripped off from David Bowie. Or from Tony Basil. Or from for that Tony matter. Basil. Uh, the actual backwards walk dated back as early as the 30s, performed by Cab Calloway. That I did not know. Tap dancer Bill Bailey and later by James Brown. But it wasn't until Michael Jackson that he immortalized it. The moonwalk. As yeah. the moonwalk. So I just dropped a knowledge bomb on you. I am. My <laughs> mind is blown. Uh, on Sunday, November 24th, Bowie was working on a cover for Bruce Springsteen's It's Hard to Be a Saint in the City, hey! which he had started in the late 1973 and hoped to get Springsteen involved. Early in the week, Tony called Philadelphia DJ Ed Siaki at WMMR and asked him if he could get Springsteen into the studio. <laughs> Ed got in contact with Springsteen, who caught a bus from New Jersey to Philadelphia, where Ed and Judy found him, but Judy is his wife or sister, they have the same last name, found him hanging with the bums in the station. <laughs> and at midnight, he arrived at Sigma, which was the recording studio. That's awesome. The episode was reported the next day, Bowie meets Springsteen. Well, it's appropriate. It's what happened, yeah. yeah. Good, hard-hitting reporting, kiddos. I know. <laughs> A quote from Bowie, Springsteen came down to hear what we were doing with his stuff. He was very shy. I remember sitting in the corridor with him talking about his lifestyle, which was a very, which was a very Dylan-esque lifestyle. You know, moving from town to town with a guitar on his back and all that kind of thing. Anyway, uh, he didn't like what we were doing. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember that. At least he didn't express much enthusiasm. I guess he must have thought it was all kind of odd. It was in another musical universe at the time. I got this extraordinary, strange photograph of all of us. I, I look like I'm made of wax. It's him, Springsteen. That's a photo. Right yeah. There. Ed quoted that he sang three lines. We had the engineer played in the back, keeping the first line every time. It was spectacular, watching him work like a painter, hitting every line the way he wanted. At around 7 a.m., Bowie asked engineer Carl Parluo to play back the whole track twice from start to finish. After the second listen, he nodded and said, that's it. It's done. The new album was complete with seven tracks. One of the most important being Young Americans. All right. Uh, it was released in 1975 and found him searching for liberation in Philadelphia's soul in one damn song that can make you break down and cry. Yet alienated by cocaine, which was like just the 1970s and psychological terror, <laughs> uh, Young Americans is the ninth studio album by Bowie. That's what I was saying. He releases like 11. So How am I supposed albums. to cover yeah. this? They're good. They're great. They're it's incredible. Just it's just there's so many of them. It's I mean it's I mean seriously, it's not like he's doing um the gnome thing <laughs> that he did eleven times in however many years. He's doing 
he's releasing like groundbreaking albums that are still held to this day as among the best ever. Yeah, that is not the. This problem. is a creative zenith that's pretty amazing. This is not the problem that I have. The problem that I have is that they're all great, and there are eleven of them, and it's also having to talk about his life and the trips that he's taken and the people that he's run into and the the releases and the award and it just it becomes so much and it's 16 pages and i can't this is why this is just the first part of the 70s and why i'm pretty sure i'm gonna have like 30 episodes on bowie by the time i i'm just gonna turn into david bowie <laughs> i don't have to do I, what the, on the plus side i don't have to do any uh, episodes for a while i don't not not because this is clearly going to be a 10-parter yeah exactly <laughs> We're good for another couple months. Yeah, you're fine. We're just this is no longer rock and roll heaven. This is just now David Bowie doing stuff. <laughs> oh Lord. Anyway, uh, the album itself actually marked a departure from that glam rock style of Bowie's previous album and showcased his interest in soul and R and B. Commenters have described the record as the blue-eyed soul, while Bowie himself labeled the album sounding like plastic soul. Yeah. So this album actually featured somebody that you guys might know now, but at this point had absolutely no name recognition at all. It would be Luther Vandross would be featured on this album. I am I am familiar with him, yes. <laughs> yes. It's one of his earlier appearances. Yeah, it's one of his first appearances, oh, wow. yes. After the initial session, the tour continued with a set list and design that would change due to the influence of the new stuff that had been recorded and this portion of the tour had been labeled the soul tour so this is where i'm gonna end the episode this week not with a bang but with a plastic soul uh but with luther with luther 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 vandras so uh the reason why is because next week we're gonna get into the thin white duke persona Mm -hmm. and hopefully i'm going to carry you guys through the mid 1980s on this episode <laughs> and, and i hate to say this but there's going to be stuff that's so important in david bowie's life that we just don't have the time for i mean well that's why we we always we make a point of this just about every week but as we've done this heavy hitter series we've done three giants i mean we've done eddie van halen adam yalk and now david bowie there's not, we could just do, we could dedicate this podcast just about to any of those three and just do like years worth of episodes just on them. Yeah. Yeah. We, we're, we, we know inherently when we, especially when you're dealing with somebody like David Bowie, who had a, like a 50 year career and was just so influential in music and fashion and acting and every, like everything that. I well, any anything we're gonna do is gonna feel a little superficial, no matter how how hard LD works or no matter how long these episodes are, because you can't cover his lot. You can't. We can't give you everything. Hopefully, you go watch the interviews and read the stories and listen to the music and do all that kind of stuff, um, because we can. We're, we're we'll do the best we can. But I mean, some some David Bowie up in four two hour episodes? Nah. <laughs> no. <laughs> really, we can't. We'll and the, the best thing we is, can. you could literally do an a podcast specifically based on David Bowie, and there's so much information out there about him that you could probably do 69 episodes on him. Easy. Just 69. Woo! <laughs> you guys are such boys. 
but seriously, like he lived 69 years, but it's so well documented that you literally could do an episode every year that he lived and it would be an hour and a half to two hours long. I mean, I'm trying to sum up just five years of his life and this episode is probably going to be two hours. Yeah. And yet I struggled. There are people in his life that I had to cut out that I could not put in. Like, I don't think I was able to even talk about in the first episode how he let his manager, Ken Pitt, go and how Tony DeFreeze got into his life. So there's going to be like whole chunks that I have to miss because it's kind of like writing a movie. You know, if you shoot a movie and then you take out these scenes from the movie, stuff that you talk about later on doesn't make sense. So you have to Mm -hmm. cut that stuff later on. So it's like piecing together this really long, hard puzzle and trying to do David Bowie justice. So I hope you guys go out and please make sure to to do exactly what TJ said is go listen to the the interviews, go watch his movies, go read these books. I have I've purchased three books based on his life and there is a myriad of other books out there. Apparently there was one that I found last night that I should have purchased mm-hmm. which is I think um based on the I think it's called Sweet Fascination. And that apparently is like the number one David Bowie book. I'm like, I didn't even know this existed until like tonight. So, you know, please go out there and do this because this is going to be just a brief overview that we hope to entertain and educate you guys. It's edutainment. Yep. So on that note, I'm going to give you guys our socials and then we're going to sign off with a very, very swanky song. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you guys think that we're doing a great job, you can throw some money in our tip jar at pantheon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. Our Twitter is rock and roll LT, Instagram rock and roll heaven LT, Facebook rock and roll heaven pod. Still not saying our website. And you can email us at rock and roll heaven LT at gmail.com. If I've said that too fast, it will be in the show notes. Make sure to check that out. Please make sure you come and engage with us. We are super fun. And I promise we'll only bite if you ask us. <laughs> and you need to check out all our other and awesome Pantheon podcasts at pantheonpodcast.com. .com. Hey, I actually listened to one other Pantheon podcast, and I'm not going to uh, talk about it right now because it actually plays into our next heavy hitter series. Oh. Yeah. Sweet. All right. Excellent. But did you like the the podcast? It was great. No, it was really, it was, it was fantastic. And I'll talk about it here in a couple of weeks when we get to our next heavy hitter series excellent but there's some good there's some good stuff there check it out awesome okay so uh from all of us here at rock and roll heaven to all of you guys out there in the world uh please make sure not to set anything on fire or have your identity stolen or you will miss an entire week of your own life uh <laughs> please check us out next week when we dive into the 1970s 1980s phase of david bowie's life and we touch on a little bit of controversy that happens with him during his thin white duke era uh, thank you guys so much for listening to us babble about David Bowie for like two hours. Uh, see you next week. Uh, bye, everyone. And remember, you can always be a pirate if you get conjunctivitis. Bye, everybody. Ice House. All right. And uh, so we're going to listen to the swankiest song. Pretty swanky. From David, what I consider one of the swankiest songs from David Bowie's catalog. Here is Young Americans. Yeah.
The Venture X card from Capital One gives you premium travel benefits, perfect for seeing Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, presented by Capital One. Ooh, I do love her. Earn five times miles on flights and 10 times miles on hotels through Capital One Travel. Enjoy your stay in Suite 13. Whoa, 13? That's Taylor's lucky number. The Venture X card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.